pray with me? Father, we give you praise through Jesus Christ because you have done great thing for us. You have taken us sinners who were under the judgment of your law, who were condemned and cursed, and you have given us blessing in Christ. And that's why we're here this morning, we're here this afternoon to celebrate your amazing love, your amazing grace. Now as we come to your word, we do ask that you would speak to our hearts through your inspired word. So that these words that you, which you have inspired 2,000 years ago, that they would land afresh on our hearts because they are still alive today. And I do pray, Lord, for every heart here. I pray for those who are unconverted. I do ask, Lord Jesus, that you would open their eyes today to see that they are in prison of their sin until they look to Christ. There is nothing that they can offer. There is nothing that they can give that would be acceptable except faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us who are redeemed, Lord, may we look back at the time when you have saved us, and may this be a time of celebration, that Jesus stood in our place and he took what we deserved, and that's why we received what he deserved, and that is blessing. Pray that you give me grace, Lord, to take us through this passage for your glory. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. And as we're working our way through this book, today we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And the sermon is going to be titled, From Curse to Blessing. For the last few weeks, we have been in the courtroom with Paul, where he's defending his case against those who claim that circumcision and obedience were necessary for salvation. So far, Paul has called three witnesses to the stand the first were Galatians themselves. In verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, Paul called Galatians themselves to the stand, and he asked them very pointed questions. He asked them about how they got saved, and he asked them about their current walk with the Lord. As a very skilled attorney, he asked very precise questions, and there was a very little wiggle room. He asked them either or questions, which eliminated all the discussion. It was either this or it was that. And by the time the Galatians were off the stand, Paul has concluded that they were neither saved nor are they sanctified because they were circumcised or because they keep the law of Moses. Now, after verse 5, Paul could have rested his case, but he brings up another witness, and that is Abraham. In verse 6, Paul appeals to Abraham, and that's where we were last week, both the Jews and the Judaizers, they claimed Abraham as their own. Abraham was the father of the nation, and so he was a prominent figure. And so they pointed to Abraham and said, look at Abraham. Abraham was circumcised, and he was accepted by God. So Paul calls Abraham to the stand, and he asks him the same questions as he asked the Galatians. Abraham, were you justified and were you saved because you were circumcised and because you've kept the law? And what was the answer as we saw last time? Abraham says, no, I was saved at the age of 75 in Genesis chapter 12. And I was circumcised at the age of 99 in Genesis chapter 17. So therefore, my circumcision had nothing to do with my salvation. And as far as the law goes, the law did not exist. The law came 400 years after I died. 
So therefore, I could not have obeyed the law to be right with God. Therefore, neither circumcision nor obedience to Mosaic law had nothing to do with my salvation. It was faith and faith alone. I was justified and I was sanctified because I believed God. And again, Paul could have rested his case here, but he calls another witness. In verse 8, he calls Scripture. He calls Scripture to the witness stand, and he does so to prove that the gospel that he is preaching is in line with Scripture. He appeals to Scripture to show that this was God's way of salvation from the very beginning. When God spoke to Abraham, the nation of Israel did not yet exist. And yet, back in the day when God spoke to this pagan dude, Abraham, God says, through you, I will bless all the nations. And guess what? Even the concept of nations as we think of them today did not exist then. When we're talking about, I will bless all the peoples through you, we're talking about families and we're talking about tribes. That's why when you come to the New Testament and you come to the Great Commission, when Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, go and make disciples of all the ethnos, of all the ethnic groups, of all the nations, we would translate that, but literally of all the tribes and of all the ethnic groups, there is only one race. Adam's race. And there are multiple ethnic groups. And God spoke to Abraham long ago, 2100 BC, and he says, through you, I will bless all the nations. Now, as we come to our text, Paul calls the fourth witness to the stand, and that is Mosaic law. In the remainder of this chapter, Paul will focus specifically on the Mosaic law. Paul will deal with many facets of the law, and we will look at each of them as we examine these verses But in our sections, which is verses 10 through 14, Paul gives us a big picture, which he will further explain beginning in verse 15. Here's Paul's proposition in these verses. All who fall short of the law are cursed, but all who trust in Christ are blessed. Let me say that again. All who fall short of the law are cursed, and all who trust in Christ are blessed. Now, in verses 15 through 18, which we'll look at next time, Paul explains the relationship between the law and the promise which God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Beginning in verse 19, Paul will answer the question, why the law then? If the promise came before the law, and the promise was great, if promise is good, and if promise is still intact, why would you need the law? And so he answers that question beginning in verse 19. But for today, our verses are 10 through 14, and we'll hang our thoughts on these two points. First, in verses 10 through 12, we will consider the curse of the law. And then, in verses 13 and 14, we will look at the redemption of Christ. The curse of the law and the redemption of Christ. Join me as I begin to read in verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's begin with the curse of the law. Now just to clarify, in this text, when Paul uses the word law, he is speaking of a mosaic law. He's not using the term in the general sense to refer to the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Otherwise, Paul would be saying that the entire scripture brings a curse. That is not what he's saying. Now, Paul is not arguing against obedience to God's commands, and neither are we. The issue at stake in this text is what you obey and why you obey it. You see, false teachers insisted that Galatians needed to obey Mosaic law. That's what you obey. And the reason why they insisted it, because they said that in order for you to be right with God, accepted by God, that's why you need to obey the law. And what is Paul's response? As a Christian, you are not under Mosaic law. You are not under the law. The reason why you're not under the law, because Christ fulfilled that law on your behalf. You are definitely not made right with God by obeying the law, and neither are you sanctified, because that was never the intent of Mosaic law. Now, I begin reading in verse 9, although our verses begin in verse 10, because I want you to see the connection between these two verses. In verse 9, you see Paul's conclusion from his previous argument that Abraham was justified by faith. And then Paul concludes in verse 9, he says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Just like Abraham was declared just because he believed, everyone who has the same faith as Abraham is likewise declared just. Now in verse 10, notice it begins with 4, which tells us that this is supporting argument to what Paul has just stated. In fact, if you look closely at verse 10, you will see that there are two fours in that verse. First four explains why Abraham-like faith is necessary for justification or for you to obtain blessing. And the second four explains the reason why all who are under the law are under a curse. Now let's examine them one at a time. First, Paul says that Abraham-like faith is necessary for salvation. And the reason why that's so, because he states in verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Now first we need to define who these as many are. Who is Paul talking about when he says, as many as are of the works of the law? Now clearly in this context here specifically, Paul is referring to these false teachers who claim that one must obey Mosaic law and be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says anyone who puts himself under the law, anyone who relies upon the law either for their salvation or for their sanctification is under a curse. But notice Paul does not stop there. Paul is not just talking about those people who trust in the law to be saved. Notice how inclusive this statement is. Look again at verse 10. For as many, cursed is everyone who does not abide. You go to verse 11. Now that no one is justified by law before God is evident. Now notice he expands this group, and by the time Paul is done, this includes every man and every woman who ever lived. As many, everyone, and no one. No one is justified by the law. 
You can read it this way. For all people are under a curse. That's how you can read that verse. Because Paul says, Abraham-like faith is necessary for justification. Why? Because all people are under a curse. Now we might say, well, what is a curse? What is a curse? When we're talking about someone cursing somebody, we're talking about someone appealing to a higher power to bring punishment or harm to someone else. You know, people curse and they curse with God or they curse by the devil. And so they want some kind of harm to come to the other person. But notice here Paul says that all people are under a curse. This is a divine judgment. This is divine curse. And if one is under that divine curse, he's destined for eternal harm. Now notice he says, for as many as of the law, and we'll talk more about that in just a second, they're under a curse. So people are the object here, but who's the subject? Who's the one who curses? Listen, it is none other than God himself. Because again, if you look at the verse, verse 10 says, For it is what? It is written. It is written. He appeals to Scripture. He says, It is written. And what is written? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now specifically, he's going back to Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you want to turn there, you could. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, this is Moses speaking to that generation who's about to go into the promised land. And God gives this instruction through Moses to the people. Deuteronomy 27, beginning in verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in the secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now you keep reading in that chapter, and there's curse after curse after curse after curse. He says six tribes will stand on one mountain, six tribes will stand on the other mountain. And because Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant, God is saying, listen, this is how we're going to operate. If you're going to obey me, if you're going to listen to me, if you're going to do everything that I command you to do, you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey me, if you will not listen to me, you're going to be cursed. And so you have these two pronouncements, cursed, 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 cursed. You come to the end of the chapter, and the very last verse says this. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now that is the verse that Paul quotes in our passage. Basically, this verse says, Cursed is everyone who does not do everything that the Lord commands. Because it is a conditional covenant, your blessings were contingent upon your obedience. Now look at the specifics of this curse. It says, Cursed is who? Everyone. 
There are no exceptions. You see, as we said, to be cursed by God, yes, there were physical punishments for the nation of Israel, but ultimately we're talking about eternal damnation. Who qualifies for this curse? He says, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, clearly, this is a reference to Mosaic law because you have all these references here to the book of the law to perform them. Let me translate this for you. Basically, this verse says this, Cursed by God is everyone who is not perfect. Let that sink in. Cursed by God is everyone who is not perfect. Now, how do we get to that? Like, if you look at verse 10, this is Paul's logic. Premise 1. Everyone who does not perfectly obey God's commands all the time is cursed. Premise 2. No one does everything that God commands all the time. Conclusion. Everyone is cursed. That's what Paul is driving at. And when we say, well, everyone is cursed, it's not a very feel-good message, is it? It's not. It's not a message that's going to be very popular or draw applause from the world or make you popular. It's about as popular as just going into a crowd of people and telling, listen, all of you, every single one of you have terminal cancer and you're about to die. That's not what people want to hear. You see, most people, they want to be affirmed. They want to be accepted. They want to be celebrated. But guess what? If you actually have terminal cancer... You don't want your doctor to affirm and celebrate you. You don't. If you actually have terminal cancer, you want doctors to spot that cancer as soon as possible and tell you about it so that you can actually start doing something about it and perhaps extend your life. So telling people that they are cursed, if that is the reality, in fact, that is the most loving thing you can do, even though they might not like you for it and they might not listen and you might not become popular. You do not want your doctor to smile and to tell you that all is well when cancer is spread into every part of your body. You do not want to do that. And that's why Paul stops here and he says, let me just tell you something. Every single person is cursed. So what does the law do? Because Paul has just called the law to the stand. And here were people who were trying to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. And Paul says, actually, what the law does, law does not bring salvation. Law brings a curse. Law brings condemnation. Now, if that's not clear, look at Paul further explains in verse 11 that the law does not save because the law cannot justify. That's his logic. Look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. No one is justified. Again, notice how inclusive this is. No one. Notice he doesn't say, listen, guys, it is very difficult to be justified by the law. He doesn't say, there is an easier way to be justified than actually obeying the law. He doesn't say that for most people, I mean, it's going to be really tough. No, he says no one, period. No one includes no one. You don't have to do word studies on that. No one means no one. No one is justified by the law before God. Now, because we're still in the same context, we're talking about justification. We're talking about how are you accepted before God? Does God accept you because you obey Mosaic law? Now, what evidence does Paul give for his statement? 
Paul just states no one is justified by the law. And he says, this is evident. This is clear. This is like black and white. How do we know that? Because again, he says, for it is written. For, and he appeals again to Scripture. Specifically, he appears, uh, appears here, appeals to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now again, because some of us are not so familiar with these quotes from the Old Testament, we tend to skip over like, okay, I get it, you know, it's somewhere in the Bible. But you see, Paul assumed that when he quotes this, this is like a hyperlink, that illustration that I used before, that you click on it, you go back to the original context, and it tells you all about it, and Paul says, let me explain that to you. And notice Paul says, it is evident, why? Because Scripture says so. Here's the context of the quote that Paul cites here from Habakkuk chapter 2. If you haven't read the book recently, here it is. The prophet opens the book, and he begins to lament the state of the nation where he's living. He is praying to God because he feels like they are abandoned by God. There is wickedness all over the place. Listen to his lament in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arises. Therefore the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. This is a horrible situation. It's like, Lord, why is it so bad? And I'm praying to you for relief, and relief doesn't come. How does God respond? Listen to verse 6. The Lord says, Behold, I am raising up Chaldeans that fear, fears and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And the prophet's like, What? He says, Listen, Habakkuk, you haven't seen anything yet. Babylonians are coming, and they're going to make it a lot worse. They're going to destroy everything and everyone you know. Now, why is that going to happen? Well, remember the old covenant? Remember the old covenant where God says, you obey me and I will bless you? You disobey me and I will curse you? Well, guess what? You, you were disobedient. Guess what? You violated my law. Guess what? You went and you worshipped all those pagan gods and you did not worship me. So guess what? You're under a curse. You remember the deal that you made at Mount Sinai where you says, we will, said, we will obey everything that the Lord commands. Guess what? You're under a curse. Now the prophet is confused. And he asks in verse 13, he says, Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent with the wicked swallows up those more righteous than they are? I mean, Lord, I know we're wicked, but Babylonians? Have you seen what they've been doing? I mean, they're even more wicked than we are, and you're going to take them and punish us using them? What's going on? He's confused. But notice God makes a promise that you will be judged. The nation will be judged. The curse is coming. So Habakkuk continues in chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for appointed time. It hastens toward the gold, and it will not fail. 
though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. I'm back. Judgment is coming. It is coming, and you wait for it. And then you have verse 4, which Paul cites in Galatians. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with me, but the righteous will live by his faith. Judgment is coming. It will not be averted. But guess what? There is one way to survive. There is one way to survive, and that is to be righteous and to live by faith. Now notice how perfectly this fits with the context of Galatians. All are guilty under the law. All are under a curse. All are under judgment. The judgment is coming, but guess what? There is one way to escape that judgment, and that is to live by faith. That is to be righteous, and guess what? The law cannot produce righteousness. The law cannot make you righteous. If you go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul wrote this already. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So what he basically said, the law never produces righteousness. Because if you could be righteous by obeying the law, then Jesus Christ would not have to come. And guess what? If you say that there is some other way to be saved, what are you saying about the sacrifice of Christ? The law does not produce righteousness, but the only way to escape judgment is to be righteous. Now, Someone might say, well, listen, it takes faith to obey the law, does it not? You have to believe. And that's why in verse 12, Paul makes the effort to show that God's commands, when it comes to the law, it's not believing the law, but it's actually doing the law. What God requires is not believing in the law, but actually doing the law. Because verse 12 says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. You see, the principle of the law is diametrically opposed to the principle of faith. Now, to be clear, there is righteousness in the law. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, For Moses writes that a man who practices uh, that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. So Paul says that there is righteousness in the law. But how do you get that righteousness from the law? I mean, all you have to do is just perfectly obey the law. That's all. Perfectly obey the law. And the question is, who can do that? No one. There's only one person who ever did that. And that is Lord Jesus himself. In fact, the righteousness that he imputes to you, he acquired by perfectly obeying the law of God. So for 33 years, Jesus perfectly obeyed God in every way, and he accumulated that righteousness, which he then imputes to those who believe in him. But guess what? No one else but Jesus is able to acquire the righteousness which is based on the law. Because the law reflected the righteousness of God, but one cannot attain that righteousness, as we'll see further on in this chapter. The law has to do with your deeds. Justification has to do with faith. You believe in the one who did it all for you. What's the bottom line of these verses? If we were just to take this and summarize this, this is Paul's logic here. The Mosaic law cannot save, and it does not bring sanctification, but it does bring condemnation and curse. Mosaic law cannot save, but it does condemn. 
And the reason why it cannot save, because it cannot justify. It cannot justify because it cannot make one righteous. And it cannot make one righteous because it cannot make a sinner who is dead in his sin alive. If you skip down to verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But guess what? The law has never been given that would be able to impart life. Law kills. Law never gives life. And when you are born of Adam, you're dead already in your sins. And that is confirmed by the law. Now, this should put everyone in a very helpless place. Because every one of us, every single person who has ever lived, falls short of God's righteous standard. No one except Christ has ever perfectly obeyed the law. Now, when God gives his perfect standard and he says, you ought to obey this, the response of people should have been like, Lord, we can't do this. I can't. I'm imperfect. I fall short. That should be your response. And so for anyone who hears this, hey, you ought to be perfect. Remember James, who says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. What does that mean? There is no way you can keep the law or be righteous or maintain your righteousness by obeying the law. And you see, it is only when a person comes to this place where he realizes that there is nothing I can offer to God that he's ready to hear the good news that comes in verse 13. It is only when you come to this place when you understand that under God's righteous judgment, you are condemned because you are a sinner, because you have violated His law, and there is nothing that you can bring in your hands. That's why we have verses like, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. Recognizing that there is nothing that you can offer to God. That's why we sang today, nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. Obedience Gifts, good deeds, nothing in my hands I bring because nothing can justify you except the blood of Christ. That's why the good news comes in verse 13. When you recognize that you are under a just judgment of God, you come to verse 13 and you hear this good news of redemption of Christ. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us. Now just let these words sink in. Christ redeemed us. We did not do it. Christ did it. Now, when we're talking about redemption, we're talking about buying back. It was a word that was commonly used for purchasing slaves' freedom. You see, the law shuts up everyone under sin. The law gives you no way out. The law brings about condemnation. And then he says, Christ comes and he offers and he gives to you what the law could not do. Christ redeemed us. Now, who's us here? Us is everyone who has faith in Christ. It's everyone who has Abraham-like faith. Christ redeemed us. Now notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, you know, Christ tried to redeem us. I mean, he did his part, now you got to do yours. Like firefighters in 9-11, they ran into the burning towers trying to save as many lives as they could. Did what they can, but many were lost. Notice, Christ didn't try to redeem us. Notice what it also doesn't say. It does not say Christ gave us an opportunity to be redeemed. 
You know, Christ built a bridge halfway, now you got to do the other half. No, Christ redeemed us. When Jesus Christ on the cross said, it is finished, it was finished. The redemption of sinners was finished. His release was secured. What did Christ redeem us from? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is exactly the same curse that he just talked about in chapter 3, verse 10. Because every single person violated the holy standard of God, they are all eternally damned. Paul later on explains, and he says, the wages of sin is death. What is sin? Sin is violation of the law of God. Sin is violation of God's high standard. And he says, the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death happened to Adam and Eve as soon as they sinned. God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And they died spiritually the moment they sinned. All of their descendants, and that's all of us, we all come from Adam, and we are born in the state of spiritual death. And as a result of spiritual death, physical death came into the world as well. And the person who dies physically in the state of spiritual death will experience eternal death in the lake of fire. That is the curse of the law. Damnation and eternal separation from God. That's what law brings. Law condemns sinners. And law declares that this is the high standard of God. And because you fall short of it, this is the penalty. But to be redeemed. When Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He says Christ has taken you off of his death row where you were supposed to be die. Christ took you off the spiritual and eternal death row. To be redeemed is to experience life. I mean, is that not what Jesus said in John chapter 10? I came that they may have life and life abundantly. You see, even physical death for those who are in Christ is not a threat because physical death will just usher you into glory, into the presence of Christ because Christ defeated death and sin. And so if you are redeemed, all of the penalty was removed. All of the penalty was taken away, and now you are accepted. Now, how did Christ redeem us? Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Now, that's substitution. That's substitutionary atonement. And that is the doctrine that is so clearly taught in the Bible, where Paul says, Having become a curse for us, that's substitution. You see, Christ stood in our place, and he absorbed the wrath that you and I were supposed to receive for every infraction of the law of God. Paul is saying here that when Jesus hung on the cross, God treated Jesus as you were supposed to be treated because you broke the law, and as I was supposed to be treated because I broke the law. You see, this doctrine of substitutionary atonement, it destroys pride. It destroys pride because it says that you cannot do anything to atone for your sin. And you see, if, I mean, people think like, you know, I can do some good things, you know. I can help grandma cross the street, or I can give money to the poor, or I can... And see, because of our pride, we think that, man, I can bring something to God. And God says, nope, there's only one thing that I accept, and that is the sacrifice of my son, and if you come to me with anything other than the sacrifice of my son, you will be rejected and you will receive what you deserve. 
You see, when he says here, Christ stood in our place, that is there to humble you. That is there to tell you, like, no matter how good you think you are, you're not good enough because you're not perfect. That must humble you, destroy pride. Until you recognize that, you will never come to God. You see, until a person does not come to a place where he sees that, I can't do nothing. Look, there's nothing in my hands that I can bring to you that you will accept. They'll try. And that's why, you see how ridiculous this was here when people tried to say, well, just keep the law and you'll be accepted by God. Obey the commands of God and you'll be sanctified or you'll be accepted. No. Paul says, no, you cannot be accepted because of anything that you do. You see, this doctrine of substitutionary atonement was vividly pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. You see, God did not only give sacrifices, He did not only give the law to people, but He also gave sacrifices. And the reason why He did that, because He knows that no one can obey the law. Because every single person will fall short. And guess what? If you live under that dispensation, under Mosaic law from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, and if you were to violate the law, what were you supposed to do? You were supposed to go get a blameless animal, and God prescribed whatever animal it was. And you were supposed to go, and you were supposed to bring it to the priest. And you are supposed to slaughter that animal so that the blood would be shed. Because according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, there is no remission of sin without shedding of blood. You see, the blood of the animal that you shed there temporarily covered your sin. And the reason why I say it's temporarily, because ultimately your sin was not forgiven because you slaughtered a goat. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So from Adam until Moses, from Moses until Jesus, millions and millions of animals were sacrificed, and those animals or the blood of those animals simply temporarily covered the sins of those who sacrificed them. They were not atoned for. The sins were not atoned for. And it is as if they were put into storage and they were stored up until that day when Jesus hung on the cross. And then when Jesus hung on the cross, the gates of that storage room were open. And all of those sins of all the people who ever believed from Adam until Jesus were placed upon Christ. And all the sins of those who will believe post-cross until the last sinner will be saved. Their sins likewise were put upon Christ. And Christ stood there and he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He atoned for sin of the sinners in the past and of the sinners in the future who will be saved. He stood there in their place. Law brings a curse. And anyone who violates the law deserves to die. And guess what? That's why Christ died. That's why he shed his blood. That's why he needed to be crucified. Now we know that he was cursed by God. How do we know that? Because Paul says he was hung on the cross. Verse 13 says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, this quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. And it says this, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. See, there were laws in the Old Testament which required death penalty. And he says, if there is a person who violates that law, he ought to be put to death. And usually, death sentence was carried out swiftly. Usually, it was carried out by stoning. 
And then they would take the person who was killed and they would hang him on a plank or on wood, on some piece of wood. And that was a sign for everybody so that everyone would look at him and say, look at that, this man is cursed of God. Now, he was not cursed because he hung on the tree. No, he hung there because he was cursed. This was demonstration for everybody. And that's part of the reason why you have death penalty. That is a demonstration to say to people, oh, you do that, you will be right there. And that prevented people from sinning or committing those sins. And so he says, you should put him up there until the end of the day so that people would see them. Because they would see that such a person who violates the law of God is cursed of God. Now Paul takes this picture and he applies it to Christ. And he says, you look to Christ because Christ hung on that cross. And what was that a picture of? It was a picture that he was cursed of God. Christ was cursed of God. No, he was not cursed of God because of his own sin. Because when he hung there... He hung there on our behalf. That's why Peter says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Paul adds, 1 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's substitution. That's substitution. That's us sinners deserving wrath, deserving punishment, deserving to be executed and to be hung on the tree And God says, I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to take my son. I'm going to send him into the world. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to obey every command and every law of God. He's going to live a sinless life. And then he's going to be nailed to the cross. And when he's going to be nailed to the cross, I'm going to impute your sins to him. And I'm going to pour my wrath on him for the things that you have done. So that if you place your faith in him... I'm going to take the righteousness which he accumulated for 33 years, and I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to count you as if you perfectly obeyed me for 33 years. That's substitution. And that's what he says here. That's the celebration. What is the result? Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, he offered himself as a payment to God so that you and I would receive the blessings which were promised to Abraham. And what were those blessings? Well, it's nothing short of justification. Because if you look at verse 8, he says, The scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. In order to bless you, God cursed his own son. God treated him as if he was cursed. And God treats you as your son because Jesus Christ stood in your place. And notice Paul says here that you receive the blessings of Abraham. And these blessings of Abraham, they come with the promise of the Spirit. Now this is what he talked about earlier in verses 1 and 2. Did you receive by the Spirit, by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because you believed in Christ. Because you believed in the message of the gospel. That's how you receive the Spirit. That's how you go from a curse to a blessing. Simply because you trust in Christ. You see, that's what it's all about. That's what we're going to celebrate right now as we're going to come to communion table. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to proclaim that I could not have done this for myself and neither can you. But there is one who stood in our place. 
This is an opportunity for us to come and to rehearse that story again to ourselves that we're accepted not because we're good, but because He's good. Not because of our work, but because of His work. Is that your story? I want to close our time with two quotes. One from Charles Spurgeon and another from John Bunyan. In his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon describes his pre-conversion state when he writes this. The law seemed also to blight all my hopes with its stern sentence. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Only too well did I know that I had not continued in all the things, so I saw myself accursed. Turn which way I might. If I had not committed one sin, that made no difference. If I committed, it broke, because I have committed another, I am under a curse. What if I had not blasphemed God with my tongue? Yet, if I had coveted, I had broken the law. He who breaks a chain might say, I did not break the link, that link or the other link. No. But if you break one link, you have broken the chain. Ah, oh, me. How I seem shut up then. I had offended against the justice of God. I was impure and polluted. And I used to say, if God does not send me to hell, he ought to do it. I sat in judgment upon myself and pronounced the sentence that I felt would be just. So the law worried and troubled me at all points. It shut me up as an iron cage. And every way of escape was effectually blocked up. You see, that's the intent of verses 10 through 12. So that you recognize that where whatever you broke, however good or however bad you are, you have broken the law of God. And, and on your own, there is no escape. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was also once in this state. But listen to the description of his deliverance. He writes this, but one day, as I was passing in the field, fearing lest yet I was, all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul, thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say was my righteousness, so that whatever I was, or whatever I was doing, my God could not say, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw that, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now when I also home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. Man, what a picture. God looks at his son who's at his right hand, and his son is my righteousness. So whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you are, if you place your faith in Christ, Christ is your righteousness. And Christ will never change because he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And you are accepted because of the son, not because of anything that is in you. Well, guess what? You can go home today like John Bunyan. He said, I went home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. How? Because you believe in Christ. Because you come to him and you say, I want to be found in you. Not having righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. Now for us who have believed, 
That's what we celebrate here today. We come to the table because we are accepted. We are brought near because Jesus Christ was rejected. So let us pray and we'll partake in the communion.